Hi, and welcome to the Drawing Inspiration Podcast. I am your host, Mike Henley. Episode 22, Finding Your Artistic Voice with artist, author, and illustrator, Lisa Congdon. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you're doing well, and uh, you had an opportunity to do some drawing or painting or some creative work. So before we get into the interview, just a few uh, short updates. So I received in the mail over the last couple of weeks a um, my sketch note idea book order. So I don't know if you listened to episode eight. I had Mike Rohde on, and he was talking about a new um, sketchbook that he was creating. And uh, I backed it through Kickstarter, and I got my three copies. And I just wanted to comment quickly on that, that uh, it is a beautiful book. I have to say the cover, I just want to just lay my hands on it all the time. It's just a beautiful cover. And uh, it's gray, and there's a couple of markers in it. Uh, page markers. It's got a beautiful elastic in the paper. The paper is really, really nice. I did some graphite work on it. I'll post a link to that. And it really held the graphite well. It's a little bit different than using a moleskins. Like there's not as much tooth to it. So you have to be a little bit more careful about laying down the layers, but it worked really well. And I did some uh, some ink work on it too. I'm going to do a little bit more of that, I think, and I'll share that through Instagram. But uh, I really am very happy with this book. The, the pages are completely blank, and uh, it's a beautiful size. I think this is going to be my go-to as a matter of having a, uh, a book available for taking notes and, um, and for what, what it was designed for, and that is for sketch noting. So I'm uh, pretty, pretty excited about this. I would recommend that if you found that episode interesting and you're exploring sketch noting, this is probably the book to get. Mike and uh, Airship Notebooks did a brilliant job in pulling this all together. I will provide a link back to uh, episode eight and the Sketchnote Idea Book website. They're not taking orders now, but you can add yourself to a list and they'll let you know when more orders become available. So really happy about it. So check it out and um, check out the podcast and we talk about it quite a bit on that. So the other thing I did was uh, I did a couple of drawings in the last couple of weeks. I worked on a, a woodpecker and this was based off a reference photo from someone else and I liked it because it had really a great mix of textures. I've had a lot of compliments on it, especially with regard to the bark. <laughs> and I just I really enjoy drawing bark. It almost feels like a city where you're looking at the various roads and and I just love that texture. And especially in that one there was the the, the woodpecker itself, but the the bark and the wood, and then the uh, the moss growing on it. So it was a really, I, I've been really kind of attracted to these kind of mix of textures lately. And when I'm doing all these, I am thinking about a larger version. These are all done in my moleskin book, which is I think three by five. So when I do these, I am thinking about when I have the time to devote to a larger piece, which may be two or three times the size. I'm just trying to get a feel for how this is going to go down and whether I need to modify the composition. For me, it, I, it, I kind of always <laughs> wrestle with, is it a drawing or a sketch? Because I treat it more like a sketch because typically it's around a couple of hours and I'm not really serious about it. I don't, I'm not going to frame these. I don't have any intent in doing that and um, I don't think I would sell them, but I'm, I'm looking at, you know, can I put these together or just do a larger version of them? So that's what I'm doing when I'm kind of posting and sharing these images. So the other drawing I did was a puffin, and I'm going to say, I guess two years ago, we were out in Newfoundland and uh, off the east coast of Canada, and we saw just thousands of puffins, and I didn't get a decent picture. 
And I was so disappointed that I wasn't able to get a nice clear picture, but I was able to connect with um, uh, photographer John Bishop on uh, Instagram, and he offered one of his photos. He said, if you ever want to draw one of my photos, go right ahead. So I decided to do that with one of the puffins. And so that's the image that I'm going to link in the show notes. And uh, I loved it because it had that kind of typical picture of a puffin with fish in its beak. I think this is um, maybe not a Newfoundland puffin. I think it may be off the coast of England. I'm not sure on that, but um, uh, either way, I really enjoyed doing this puffin. The um, I did use most of the reference photo, but I modified where it was standing quite a bit, and I added a shadow, and once again, looking for the textures. The feet kind of freaked me out a little bit, and so did the fish. Um, the fish, I think I was, I'm, I think I'm happy with both, but I really want to do this again much larger, because I think that I could really, I think I could do a much better job on the fish. And the feet, I, I'm pleased with, but I think I would do them a little bit differently in the future. And uh, even the texture underneath the, the puffin with the rocks and the gravel and that, it's, I think it's a little bit too structured for me, so I think I need to make it a little bit rockier. Um, so it's, it's a good kind of first study, and this is what it's all about, right? Is getting that graphite or that paint down onto the paper, exploring, trying to get a sense of tone and value and figure out my darks and things like that. And um, once again, it was both these drawings were done with the uh, the Pentel Graph Gear 1000.3 mil, and I'm just using 2B and 2H pencils at this point, or LEDs. I'm not using HB anymore, and that seems to get me where I need to be. On the Puffin, I did use some 4B 0.5 millimeter LED just on its on its tail feathers there, just to get it nice and dark. But uh, I'm pretty happy with with it, and uh, as I say, keep an eye out because I think I'm going to do a larger one, maybe you know, eight by ten, eleven by fourteen kind of thing. Uh, I really like puffins; they have <laughs> such an interesting expression on them, and uh, that's why I like uh, drawing them and drawing birds is the, the expressions and trying to do a little bit more where it's not just uh, a static image. I'm, I like to you know the idea that they're kind of sneaking a look at the camera or they're occupied with something else. I'm trying to get those kind of uh, images so. It's been kind of fun. Stay tuned. I'll be doing more. So that's it for updates. Now let's get to the interview with Lisa Congdon. I started my creative journey in my mid-40s with a focus on choosing a medium, buying some supplies, and slowly honing my skills. I picked up a few books on developing my art, and of course, there was YouTube. But I was always lacking a larger view, a narrative, an ability to find my place, my people. My guest this week is an artist, author, and illustrator who is known for her colorful, abstract paintings, intricate line drawings, wonderful pattern design, and hand lettering. She has worked with Crate and Barrel, Facebook, and Harvard University, among many others. Her art journey has been an inspiration to me, and her recent book, Finding Your Artistic Voice, has given myself and thousands of others the license to be creative, successful, and be happy. Welcome to the Drawing Inspiration Podcast, Lisa Congdon. How are you? I'm doing great, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. I'm so happy that you were able to put uh, some time aside to uh, to join me and and talk about your journey because it's I feel it's unique but familiar especially to me. Part of the reason that I was intrigued to talk to you because I love talking to other people who kind of figured out that creativity or art needed to be part of their life later in life. It ha- it's happening more and more I think now. You know, just to highlight this, you did come to art quite late. Yeah, you know, I I started 
drawing and painting in earnest when I was 32 or 33. Like I, I started taking classes. That's around the time that I discovered that I enjoyed making art. But it wasn't until I was 39 that I left my job to try to pursue a career in art. So yeah, I mean, relative to a lot of people who sort of grow up, feel, even if they don't pursue a career in art, they grow up sort of understanding that they have artistic talent or that they like making art or maybe they even major in art and do something else. I was completely the opposite. Like I thought of myself as the least artistic person in the room. I mean, I was always sort of told that I was creative, but I never felt like any, you know, to me, being an artist meant you had technical skill. You could actually draw something. And I realize now that being an artist or a creative person is so much more than that. Um, but at the time, I never would have considered myself artistic at all until I started taking classes and started learning skills that then gave me, you know, the, some, you know, license to call myself an artist, which actually took a few more years. But that process started for me when I was in my early 30s. And so can I ask a really simple question about art? Why did you enjoy it when you first started it? What was it about that compelled you to to do more of it and get better at it? I sort of started as a fluke. I mean, it's interesting to hear myself say that because now that, you know, I always think of my artistic journey starting at this one specific point, which I'll tell you about in a second. But, you know, my mom and my ex who I was with in my 20s and all these other people in my life will tell you that I was actually making art and being very creative way before that. It's, I think it was just more my mindset because I was always somebody who was making things and dabbling. And so always my entire life since I was a kid, I enjoyed making things. My mom is a super creative person, um, always, you know, super crafty, always made things, always setting up situations for us when we were kids that we could help and learn. And so it's always sort of been part of my life. but. I was one of those kids who just for whatever reason was very judgmental of my own ability to, you know, um, to make art. Like I just didn't think I was very good at it. And so I kind of abandoned it in favor of other activities. And then when I got into my early thirties, I, um, two big things happened in my life at one time. I, went through a breakup of a relationship I had been in for almost a decade. And it was my choice to leave the relationship, but I was still sort of like ungrounded and, you know, kind of untethered for the first time in my life and was um, feeling a little bit lost, right? My whole identity changed in terms of, you know, my, my life was wrapped up in my partner for so long. And then all of a sudden I was the single person who was in her early thirties. Simultaneous to that, I had gone from working in an elementary school as a as a first grade teacher to working at a nonprofit organization. And the nonprofit organization was an education focused organization, so I was still in the same field, but I went from like hands-on creative work life cuz being a elementary school teacher is a really kind of creative career. I have to make things interesting for kids to dry uh, like work life. And, and I really loved what I did, my new job in the nonprofit, but it was sort of less creative in many ways. And so right around that time, I was going through all this stuff. And I started, I, my brother actually was in school at the time to get his landscape 
design certification and he had to take an elective and there was a painting class on a Friday night for an entire semester that he wanted to take. And he also lived in San Francisco at the time, had also just been through a, a divorce. Um, we were both sort of like in our early 30s, freshly single, kind of trying to figure some stuff out. And he's like, will you take this class with me? And it was a like open enrollment kind of class at the, at the university mm-hmm. where he was studying. And I said, sure. And so we took this painting class together and we had so much fun. But I don't think my brother ever picked up a paintbrush again. But for me, it was this like huge light bulb went off. Um, and I, and it, not because I had any particular talent or because, you know, I was exceptional at it. It was more just like that I, I don't know, I, it excited me in a way that I had not been excited in a long time. And I thought, you know, I actually kind of suck at this, but. I, I had this drive to like do more and explore more. And so from that class, I, I like bought a bunch of supplies and I, I lived in this little studio apartment in San Francisco and I set up a little kind of studio on my kitchen table. And I was really into collage also at the time. And, you know, I, I got some acrylic paints and some canvases and I just started messing around. I don't know. It was this really amazing experience and i i just sort of got really into it and then um never imagining by the way that i would ever do what i do now this was a a fun thing to do on the weekends and at night that's all so it it did truly start out as a hobby for you yes or even maybe not even a hobby more just something you did in addition to watching movies or tv or you know was it did it occupy all your time? And I speak to so many creative people, artists, who think, I don't want to monetize my hobby. And is that how you started? Was it really a hobby? Well, I didn't actually understand that it was something you could do for a living beyond being a fine artist. So you have to remember, this was there was no social media back then. So now you can go on the internet and it's like you can learn about contemporary artists like myself or Picasso or whoever, right? Like literally in seconds. Um, But at the time, it was very, the world of art and design or sort of regular people like me, our exposure to it was so limited, right? So my idea of being an artist was like, you made paintings and you showed them in museums. I didn't understand that there was this whole world of illustration and design or, and so, I never imagined that it was something you could do for a living because it seemed like being a fine artist in the way that I, you know, and that in the conception of it that I had in my head would be a really hard way to make a living and have a career. So for me, it Mm -hmm. was like, I'm just going to do this for fun. And then, you know, it was really kind of amazing because at that time, this was in the early 2000s, the internet was starting to become a space where people were starting to share their work, not necessarily on the platforms that we um, use now, but on blogs and on a, you know, like a photo sharing site, like Flickr, which is where I first started like meeting other creative people. Then I started saying, oh, okay. Eventually within a couple of years, I was, I started picturing myself doing this as a living because I was seeing other people do it. And so I could envision it more. I still didn't know how it was going to work. It still felt totally mysterious to me. It still felt like something that was sort of for others and not for me, but I was so intrigued by it that I 
eventually started pursuing it as something I wanted to do all of the time and make money at. Um, but the landscape for artists back then was was very different than it is now. I mean, so much has changed just even in the last 10 years. Right. And so did people find out about you through Flickr? Is that how kind of business started? Was a bit more organic that way? Yeah. So Flickr and I had a, I started a blog in 2004. It doesn't exist anymore. Actually, I've had three blogs and none of them are on the internet anymore. But um, so it's a lot to maintain. And I've switched platforms mm -hmm. a million times and not wanted to carry <laughs> things over. And also sometimes you just have to let things go. But yeah, so I I started making things and the stuff I was making at the time was so different than the work I make now. I mean, there are definitely themes in my work over the last 13 years that that are consistent in terms of subject matter and like certain colors and there is a certain style that's been consistent, but my but the overall sort of look and feel of my work is much tighter and you know, cuz that's part of what happens when you grow as an artist, you just you get better and better. So your voice develops and emerges. And um, so I started posting pictures of the stuff I was painting and drawing at the time. And I started getting people asking me, can I buy this? And, you know, um, have you ever thought about selling that? And then a couple people reached out and said, would you like to have a show in my little shop? You know, so no gallery shows, but definitely some some little pop-up things here and there. I, I still had a full-time job for much of the time that I was doing this in the beginning. And at one point I had a full-time job, re I rented a studio and I was starting to make and sell things. So um, there was a period wow. of time where I was doing um, a lot. Um, you know, I would go to my studio at night and on the weekends. And at the time I was single, so I didn't have a whole lot, you know, pulling me away. So mm -hmm. it worked out really well. And so you've explored some, I mean, you've done some abstract work and you did, um, and I assume you still do a lot of hand lettering, right? Which was, uh, which was something I hadn't, I just, it's something I've never done. And it wasn't until I started hearing about you and watching some of the stuff that you've done and then hearing, you know, the, the books you've put out and that, that I realized, wow, this is powerful. And this is, Something that I pe I think people don't think about when they are considering a creative journey, right? That you you have to be an oil painter, right? You have to paint oils, and that's what you do. Instead of thinking about everything else that's outside of that. Yeah, and I think one of the really magical things about being an artist today is that young people, in particular, or even people you know our age, like people in middle age, who've always sort of had a creative urge, but had a very binary view of what it looked like to be an artist you know, are now seeing that there are all these ways to be an artist that are, that are, I mean, there are just so many ways to be a creative person. You know, the most traditional ways are drawing and painting. But now even within those genres, we have so many mediums, including digital mediums. You have, you know, graphic design is, is really an art form in and of itself. And that's mostly technology based. But you also have all of these other ways to make work or exposure to book arts and collage and um you know so many people have um, embraced the sketchbook as a really as a medium as a i did that for many years and that i think the most exciting thing like i think what's allowing more people to sort of embrace a creative practice is that they can find something that feeds them and that's attractive to them and it's not just this one thing right like they they're not limited right. like there there's just so many ways and in fact even you know, I, 
I love that I kind of came to age as an artist in this time when we're exposed to so many ways of being creative because I just want to try them all, you know? <laughs> it used to be that you had to be either a fine artist or an illustrator. And even if you were an illustrator, you had to choose, like you're either going to be an editorial illustrator or a surface designer. Like you couldn't do all the things. And those rules have been completely smashed. Um, people are just making the kind of work they want to make now. And, you know, you could be a gallery artist, but also be a commercial artist. I mean, it's just kind of exciting to me personally. Yeah. And I think, I mean, just to be clear too, I think we're within a year of each other in age. So I think I'll be 53 in two weeks as of the recording. So I think that that's why I found a real connection to uh, your recent book and uh, your story and, and all the work that you've done is that there is this, you know, I don't feel personally that if I would have started in art because I was intimidated in school there was a girl that I've told this story in, in previous podcasts, but I, there was a girl that came to the school. Like I used to draw quite a bit when I was, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. I wanted to be an artist uh, at that age. And then this girl came to school and she could draw horses better than me. And it was like, I'm out. <laughs> I'm not doing this anymore. And, and it's, you know, you've, there's this intimidation, right? I never really came back to it until I, I drew dinosaurs for my, uh, for our, our first daughter. And, and then I, it just started. And then I, my first, real kind of piece was uh, a chickadee I drew for my wife. I'm happy with hitting art late. I, I don't, you know, some people ask, you should have been an artist when you were, um, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 and you should have gone to school and whatever the case. I don't think so. I think I'm a better artist now because of the journey I took to get here instead of, and I don't know what your feeling is for yourself. Is it? No, in fact, I agree with you 100%. And I've, and I've, and I've said that many times. I, I am so... I mean, there's so many reasons why I'm grateful that I didn't figure this out until later. And part of it is because I got to try all these other things. And I actually got really good at some other things that have actually helped me be a better business person as an artist. They haven't necessarily helped me be a better artist, but I learned so much in my previous career about, you know, communicating with other human beings and um, how to organize my time. And those are skills that have really benefited me um, in my in in the sort of entrepreneurial aspect of being an artist. Um, but in terms of my creativity and you know my business aside, like even if I didn't make a dime from my art, my life experience and um, the sort of like emotional maturity that I have or my ability to not judge myself too harshly anymore have all come with age. And I feel, like if I had tried to embark on this when I was in my 20s, I would have been so intimidated and felt, I don't know, I, there's a way that I have this like wisdom and perspective now that helps me loosen up in the creative process way more than I ever imagined I could have done in my 20s. And similarly, people will always say, what if you had figured this out when you were 17, 16 or 17 or whatever, and gone to RISD and like, where would you be now? And I'm like, well, I might be completely burned out and doing something different because <laughs> I didn't figure it out until I was in my 30s and I've already done so much. And I'm already figuring out like, I know I'm always going to be an artist, but I'm like, well, what is that going to look like in the future? And part mm -hmm. of what I think about is like the reason my art is what it is today is because of my lived experience. And that would have been mm -hmm. completely different if I had started earlier. So I'm just so glad I started when I did 
and I I have no regrets. I have regrets about a lot of things, but but when I started my art career is not one of them. Yeah, and I think the other parallel with this is that you not only did it, but you talked about it. And I think being, I mean, let's say well seasoned <laughs> when you first got into this, that you had that ability to wrap up your experience in a story and a narrative that people can consume that would help them move further, right? And that's really hard to pull out of somebody who's maybe in their 20s getting into it and having them to having them pull that together in a way that can tell a story that others can can understand and can relate with. And I think you've done that and that's what I'm doing with the podcast is it is my way to openly share my journey in becoming an artist, uh, a better artist. And I think your books and your your public speaking and everything else has done that for you. I would I would assume that in having to tell the story, you're becoming better, not at just the business, but at the creative and at the art, right? Yes, 100%. And I am actually just like so grateful that my life path kind of has gone the way it has. And there have been some rough spots in there that have been hard for me. I went through a period of like in, intense imposter syndrome in the beginning because I was in my 40s. I was starting to get some notoriety and I felt like, who am I? Like, I don't deserve this. I'm, done, I'm a nobody. I just taught myself how to do this. Like, I can't possibly be doing it well. And, you know, this is embarrassing. And, you know, I had all kinds of insecurity. But even the process of of experiencing imposter syndrome and overcoming it has made me a better person because I'm more empathetic to other people's experience of imposter syndrome. I, I understand what it feels like to feel um, unworthy. And that comes through in my work and in my writing and helps me to connect to other people. So it's like even the things in my career that have been kind of painful or difficult have ultimately like helped me become the artist that I am today. I have such an appreciation for that that I didn't that I I don't know that I would have had when I was younger. Yeah, and I think just back to your point about the imposter syndrome, I go through it all the time. Since you said yes to being on the podcast, I've been like, who am I to have Lisa Congdon on my show? <laughs> <laughs> and I was thinking, I have to research this more than anything else, and this happens with Every single guest I have on, but especially for you because you've talked so much about it. And I was thinking, I got to nail this. I got to get this right. And so thank you for virtually mentoring me uh-huh. <laughs> in the fact that you didn't even realize you were doing it. And I wanted to touch just again on our age. It feels like sometimes when people our age are are doing this, whether the pivot happens in, in your mid-30s or 40s or 50s, that it's not treated the same way as it would be in your mid-20s, right? That you're maybe maybe you are a writer working for a newspaper and you decide you're going to go into art. People think that's pretty cool. You're changing your career and all this. And when you get into your forties and fifties, people are like, are you preparing for retirement? Like that's cute. Like it, it's not treated the same way, right? It feels it in some ways it feels harder and easier at the same time, right? It, it feels like you're more equipped to handle it, but it feels harder to explain it to people in a way that they understand it, that it, it's not just cute or interesting or a retirement plan, that it's just you're on your next phase. I remember when I first told my parents that I was going to leave my job and do this. And the dis, the, <laughs> I want to say like the, there was no verbal disdain, but like I could tell by the looks in their faces, like they, you know, I think my mom even said to me once, and I think she she would laugh now because I've become very successful, but 
she <laughs> she was like why would you you know i had a job um making mm-hmm. probably eighty five thousand dollars a year you know U- u.s dollars a year working at you know as a project manager in a nonprofit organization that was a good job in the mid 2000s and like what what like you have health insurance you own a home with a mortgage like don't do this and i knew i needed to do it and so of course that became sort of part of my emphasis you know i'm gonna prove prove my parents wrong i'm gonna prove every naysayer wrong (laughs) so that was like i'm definitely a true capricorn in that regard like don't tell me i can't do something i'll show you (laughs) Um, and i did because you know i think a lot of people were like you have this great situation already like don't screw it up um but when you have a creative urge and you have an urge to do something and make it your life like and even if you don't like even if you know if a person were to keep their day job forever but pour their heart and soul into making stuff outside of work like that's still that's still something that people might look at you know, with a little side eye, you know, like, what are you doing? Are you crazy? Um, Where I feel like if you're younger and you do stuff like that, people are like, throw caution to the wind. Now's the time, right? Or if you're like 70 or 80, everyone celebrates it. But at our age, we have to do stuff that's responsible, right? Um, God forbid we be irresponsible. (laughs) I I think I could see your eyes moving when you were saying that. (laughs) I think that... uh, and it it gets much harder, right? I think even if I if I took this more seriously in my mid thirties, it'd be easier. But you know, with kids and family and my wife and all that, it is a bit measured in my, in, especially in what I'm going through right now. And uh, you probably as well as you're moving through this with your partner and, and trying to manage all of this. Is it is it challenging at times to manage all the roles that you have in the business as as a partner as a um, and and even the split role where you're a student and a teacher, is it has it gotten easier in managing your time around all that? Um, you know, I think managing time is sort of the the hardest part of. So regardless if you're making money or not as an artist, you still have to work your butt off all of the time, and so that's the part that makes managing other parts of your life really difficult. So even you know, I feel like I've been kind of working. A bit too much maybe and was on a hamster wheel for a long time even when I was my work wasn't in demand yet um, because I was trying to get to the place where my work was in demand so I was constantly I started to think of time as this thing like it's not exactly going to translate to money but um, time is you know that was my mantra like I can't just sit around and relax I should be working because um, cause I need to be generating income. And if I'm not generating in- income, I need to be making work where I can generate income in the future. And I adopted a mindset. I think that was pretty damaging for me in the long run. And I think that's what happens to a lot of people. And I didn't even have the pressures that a lot of people our age have, which are children, maybe children, you know, approaching college age and college tuition. And there's all kinds of things you have to think about in terms of making an income, but then also how are you contributing to your household? Um, in other ways besides financially. And, you know, I was really lucky in that, you know, I I started this journey before I got into a relationship, but pretty quickly after I started the journey, I met the person I'm married to now. And I, you know, in the beginning of my career, I wasn't making very much money, but I was doing that thing that I was talking about a few minutes ago where I was sort of like, 
oh, honey, I, I got to work tonight or um, don't mind me as I have my laptop in the bed, you know, or <laughs> don't right. mind me if I stay at my studio space until 11 o'clock at night, I got to make some more stuff. And it became this addiction, part of which was um, driven by a creative urge to make things and put them out into the world. But some of it was this sense of responsibility I had, you know, if I was going to quit my job, I had to be figuring some something else out. And um, and that I think is a lot of pressure on people our age because we have so many other responsibilities. Whereas when you're younger or much older, you don't have as many responsibilities. Like um, middle age is sort of the height of your your time of like having financial responsibilities and um, and responsibilities to your family. And I think it is a really hard time for a lot of um, men or women to leave their jobs and go do something else. And I was lucky because I didn't have kids. Not that kids, who, people who have kids are unlucky, but just in terms of mm -hmm. like, you know, my ability to sort of quit my job and pursue this thing. I was in a relationship with somebody who had full-time work and health insurance that I could, you know, even before we got married, we, we were domestic partners and I was able to go on her health insurance. And I kind of was able to navigate this path for myself, um, even when I wasn't making very much money. But then the irony is I, I began to make an income and it began to grow. And then with that comes the responsibility of following through with projects and um, the demand for your work and trying to navigate, you know, managing several projects at a time, including, you know, book projects that were taking a couple of years. And um, I definitely got started to get really burned out. It was definitely negatively impacting my relationship because I wasn't spending as, not, as much quality time with my person, you know. And so... Right. Um, one of the things you know is that eventually got to the place a couple of years ago where I was like, I have to take a sabbatical at some point. But I looked at the sort of landscape of my life and my work commitments, and I realized I couldn't take a break until 2020. And I knew that even two years ago. So I started paving the way to take this year off. And part of my goal this year is, is to recalibrate. Yeah, and I think that uh, I want to get into that a bit deeper later. Uh, later on, because I think that's an exciting thing. I mean, I work in health research. We have a lot of researchers that take sabbaticals for different reasons, and I would really like to explore that a little bit. I'm not sure if you have much information at this point, but I think it would be interesting to talk that bit through as well. So I wanted to go back to the creative side of you, and I just wanted to ask this question about, do you do your art to relax or can you only do it when you're relaxed like is it is it a meditative effort or do you have to be in a certain mindset is there a ritual around it how does how do you get to that point and uh, what does your mindset need to be when you do that i feel really lucky because i am pretty much able to mar make art anytime the only time when it's really hard for me is when i'm really tired like if i'm sleep deprived <laughs> um, and my brain is like going haywire but I have been through a few periods in the last 10 years where I've had anxiety or a couple times where I felt sort of depressed. And even in those times, I've been able to sit down. It's always a little harder to motivate, but I feel like for me, the creative process is both healing and relaxing. So it both serves that, you know, to answer your question, it's like, it's both really. <laughs> when I'm more relaxed, I it's easier to sit down and get started, but it all, you know, so being relaxed helps, but it also, I understand mm, the way my, the way I tick now enough to know that if I'm in a bad space, just 
heading to the studio and giving myself a project or sitting down to making a and making a drawing will actually really help pull me out of whatever it is that I'm going through or I'll make a piece of art about whatever it is I'm thinking about, you know, that's bothering me. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, people talk a lot about creative block and I do go I have gone through a few periods where I don't feel particularly motivated to make art. And that is completely normal. Um, by the way, it doesn't really freak me out anymore. In the beginning, it sort of did. But I know those periods pass. And so sometimes I just let them be. So if you if you, if you follow me on Instagram and you notice that I'm posting a lot of older work, it probably means I'm mm-hmm. either really busy working on a project for some client or publishing project that I can't share or going through a creative slump and I'm not making any new work. And that just is completely normal. And I've learned to not panic about it because it always passes. So, And as you talk about one of your books, it's just a matter of just keep doing the thing. Right? Yes, exactly. Just- Eventually, you have to just sort of force yourself to show up. And most of the time, you know, once you get going, you lose, you, you forget that you were even stressed out about starting in the first place. And I think that's, you know, for the person listening, it's th- that idea of, of, doing this as showing up and doing it on a regular basis. You talk about, and we'll get to uh, your, your most recent book a bit later on, but this idea of, of drawing every day is something that I started doing. And then when I, when I hit your book, it was like, she said, I have to, <laughs> so now I feel like I can. And for me, when I'm at work and I work in software development, so I have, my work has nothing to do with art. I, I design websites. So that's a little bit, I guess, but I have a tough day. I take my sketchbook and I go into the cafeteria or to a the coffee shop we have on campus, and I will just sketch. I will take out my iPhone, find a reference photo, and start drawing. And I am such a better person to get along with when I've had an opportunity to get that graphite down on paper. And I've done it with the iPad as well. And we'll talk about our tools yeah. a little bit later on. But uh, I do think that that just doing it, just doing something, will lead you past that it at least keep you occupied to the point that you forget that you had creative block right yeah and i feel like having a creative practice is it's such a a wonderful way to be in the present moment right and you know you pulling out your sketchbook and getting out your 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 graphite and drawing is a way that you're you're being present with what you're doing and your mind is not necessarily spinning with all the other things that you might be stressed out about it's a way to be in your body. Mm-hmm. It's a way to engage with ideas. And that makes us all better people. Um, and that's why I think, you know, having a creative practice is important, even if you don't consider yourself a creative person. Right. So I wanted to talk about Lisa, the writer. <laughs> and <laughs> so you've, you've, you've done like a few books, right? How many books have you done now? They're not, they don't all have writing in them, but I have eight books on, out right now. Uh, so I read Art Inc., which was I think is fantastic. If you're looking at starting a business and getting into creativity, was that more? Did that come out of your direct experience, or were you answering? Were you telling your story more than in? Like, how did that come about? Because sometimes we tell stories because we want to share our experiences. Other in other cases, we want to direct maybe people that we've run into in life. And how did that come about? Well, it's interesting that you ask that because I never would have made that book. Well, I can't say, I shouldn't say that. Like, actually, maybe I would have ended up making it anyway. But I was asked to make that book way back in like 2012. Um, Chronicle Books 
and an editor there came to me and said, we, so there was a series of books that had um, preceded Art Inc. And one was called Craft Inc. And one was called um, Blog Inc. And one was called Mom Inc. And that one was being a, about being a creative um, entrepreneur mom. And they, they wanted to continue the series and they were all edited by the same person, but a different person was the author in each of them. And they said, we want to make one that's called Art Inc. And we want you to write it. And I thought, and same thing, and this is in the middle of my, um, my imposter syndrome period, right? That I talked about earlier. I was <laughs> the like, <worst> time. <laughs> who, me, what? No, I don't know what I'm doing. I, you know, I'm, I'm making this up as I go along. I have no, you know, I never went to art school. I don't know. And they're like, that's why you're the right person to write the book because you're going to write it in a way that regular people can understand not people who are proficient at this, you know, they don't need this book. We need a person who has figured it out on their own to explain it to other people. And so they, and I just kept saying, no, I just, uh, you know, I was imagining like the book being torn apart by critics and, you know, the whole thing, like I played it out in my mind way ahead. And so finally I agreed to do it. And it was really interesting because I, the process of writing the book was such a learning experience for me. I had written in my previous career quite a bit. So part of my role as a project manager in this organization was writing. And um, so I had had some writing mentors and I had written a lot on my blog and I had become a better and better writer. But this is the first time I had ever written a book that had to come from my voice, but was also authoritative, right? And I remember the first piece of feedback they gave me when I turned in the first few chapters was, you need to be more authoritative. Because I was saying things like, well, this this worked for me, but it might not work for you. Or And they're like, no, 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 no. You got to talk <laughs> about this as if you know what you're doing and trust that you do know what you're doing. So that was a big shift for me. Also, you know, I get the first draft back and it's completely... You know what Microsoft Word looks like when you, when somebody sends you something back that's been edited and it's mm -hmm. just like a hot mess and everything's, all these things are crossed out and like deleted and, and you look at it and you're like, oh my God, you know, I'm, I'm a terrible writer. But I, I came to realize that what my editors were doing were, were helping me take my good ideas and just make them really succinct. And if there's one compliment that that book has gotten, it's that it's very straightforward, easy to read and succinct. And it was through the process of writing that book that I learned to be a more succinct writer and really, really, really edit down. Because even the, the sort of approved copy of the book when it was finished that I turned in and had already been edited was the first time around was 50,000 words. And they're like, no, 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 this needs to be 30,000 words. So we had to go through and edit even more and cut and really fine tune and get the book down to the most essential information. And that was such an amazing learning experience for me. It was painful, but it was amazing. And I think it helped all my subsequent books be even better um, in terms of their succinctness. So that was like, Kind of a big learning curve for me but it was really something i will never forget um and you know we didn't end up killing each other at the end my editors and i so it's good <laughs> and that's what i really enjoyed about uh all of your books while well, I, I read art inc and uh find your artistic voice is uh 
they are really easy to read and it's not massive but there's so much content in there and i bought the kindle versions and uh, it's just so great to be able to go in and highlight phrases and and inspirational quotes and be able to think to go back to my notes and and read through them and think okay that's right she said this and and so on and so forth and the stories um and the illustrations it's all fantastic thank you so when you got to the point of find your artistic voice what how did you get to that? Was that a question you were getting a lot from people? Were you frustrated by, like, how did you get to that point where you felt you, need to, you needed to write um, that story? That one was based more on, um, on what other artists were asking me. So I had, by the time that book came about, you know, five or so years had passed since I wrote Art, Inc., I had grown my online following. I had started to teach, teach workshops. I had started to write blog posts about business topics for my readership. And it was something I was becoming known for was not just being an artist, but being a thought leader in the area of like being a professional artist or, or becoming an artist and like all of the, all of the things that go into into that. And um, one of the questions I got asked more than any other question was, how do you find your style? How do you find your voice? Um, you know, your look and feel is so distinctive. Um, my other favorite artist's look and feel is so distinctive. How do, how do you all get there? Like, how do you get to that place? And so I had really had a transformation in my own journey just in a few previous years before writing the book where I felt like my voice really came together in a way that felt very good to me. And I thought this is the perfect time for me to write this book because I just went through this and I'm not in the painful part anymore, <laughs> you know, and um, not that I don't experience painful periods, but literally the first f half of my voice finding journey was pretty painful. And so I had gotten through that. I had gotten to a place where I felt like I was more in the flow and um, it was a topic that's really interesting to me. I'm totally fascinated by it. And I had watched some artists that I mentored um, when they were first starting out, because I used to mentor other artists, and just how their work had transformed over the years. And I had watched these people in real time. And so I started to think, this is a topic I want to dig into. And so... I wasn't yet thinking book, but I wrote a blog post about it, which was actually just pretty short. And I simultaneous to that had just read um, Elizabeth Gilbert's Big Magic, which is this amazing book on creativity. And it just sparked something in me. And so I wrote a blog post and my editor emailed me. My editor is a person, you know, that I've worked with for years and years on different books. And she, mm -hmm. she emailed me and she was like, I think this is this is this is a great blog post, but I but I think it it should be a book. Can you write you know another thirty thousand words on this topic? And I said, well, let me think about that. And then I came back, I think within twenty four hours, and said, yes, let's do it. And then and that was the beginning of the journey. And I knew that it needed to include other people's voices. Like so much of the book is much more autobiographical than Art Inc. Um, mm -hmm. I do talk about my story in Art Inc. and I my voice comes through, but this book is I think. I, one thread in the book is like really talking about my own journey in the process. Um, and that felt important to me, but I also wanted to include other people. So there's a lot of interviews in the book with um, people who are, who are also artists in different genres. And um, 
And yeah, and so it was actually a real joy to write. This was the book that I enjoyed writing and illustrating more than any book I've ever made from start to finish. So, is there something that you walked away from when you were done the book that you felt that you didn't have when you started? Yes. I mean, it helped clarify for me. I mean, I think when I started off, I didn't really know what I was going to say because the process for me had sort of happened over the previous 10 years and it was all very fresh, but I hadn't taken any time to sort of codify it or, you know, um, write it out or really think through it. And I turned in an outline for the book with these sort of chapter proposals, which remained pretty consistent, you know, but to the, to the end. But what I ended up saying in each of those chapters was sometimes a surprise to me when I really came down to it. And, and so that was like, I learned a lot about just sort of what I went through. And I learned so much in interviewing people, both sort of what's very common. And I tried to you know, kind of extrapolate those things and write about them more broadly in the book as well. Like all of the things that we sort of all go through that that are very common. And then I also learned that things are very idiosyncratic. Like some people have a very easy time figuring out who they are or like don't have a, as much fear as other people and are able to sort of get to the next place very easily um, and then some of us belabor things for a very long time, you know, and there were things that I didn't know and things that I had never thought about before that I really had to dive into and explore when I wrote the book. And now I feel like I can talk about voice in this kind of um, intelligent way. I could sit down and discuss the topic with anyone. I don't know that that would have been the case when I started writing the book. So I learned a lot in the process and I researched what what other thinkers were saying about voice and um, and what had already been said, because that's an important part of writing. It's like, what's already, what have other people already said about this? And what new things do I have to say about it? And I have to be honest, when I first got the book, I was thinking, I, I was really curious, but I was really worried that I would get through it and it wouldn't speak to me. And if, if you couldn't tell me how to find my artistic voice, then maybe I can't. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, we always have this fear in creatives, right? I, I think that the creative work is much closer to our soul than, than I think a lot of the work that you do through life. And so when I read the book, and, and the other concern is, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm kind of dancing around monetizing what I do. And, and it spoke to that, right? And I was so worried that because this isn't my business, it's not going to speak to me, but that's not what the book's about. So, you know, if you're listening to this podcast and you are exploring your creativity, this book is a manual for how to do that in a way that is positive, uplifting, and leads you forward. And I think, you know, maybe we can touch, a, you know, I think people need to read the book, but uh, maybe you could touch a little bit about even just describing what artistic voice is. You do that so well in the book, but maybe just talking about that and it, is it static over time, right? Yeah. So first thing I want to say is I'm really glad that you had that response because it was very intentional on my part to not just make this book for people who want to pursue a career, like to, to sort of separate it from the entrepreneurial aspect. I do address it like one of the reasons having a voice is important is because, you know, if you're a professional artist is like that's one way in which your career becomes sustainable, you know, that you're that you have a strong voice and that you're constantly refining it. And but other than that, like the book is really about having a creative practice and diving into that deeply. Um, so. Mm -hmm. So that I'm glad you had that response because that was very important to me. 
that I wouldn't limit it to people who were either professional artists or aspiring to be to be a professional artist. So your your voice is, you know, is sort of everything that makes you who you are as an artist in whatever way you express that that the the book is really written for visual artists people who actually make things or draw or paint things um but so many of the principles in the book could apply also to musicians or choreographers or anybody who's got a creative practice that isn't necessarily you know visual art and so much of your voice is your story we often think of voice as style and style is comprised of everything from the medium that you use to um, how you make your lines and, you know, your shapes and whether you're painting abstract things versus, you know, representationally like you do, Mike, and like all of those things and how they all fit together, right? Whether you're trying to be realistic or whether you're trying to be whimsical, all of those things make up your voice. And style is a really important aspect of voice. Like what people see when they look at you, they know, how would you describe the style of this artist? And, you know, they would say, and so you want your voice to be relatively consistent over time. Eventually you want to get to the place where your voice kind of shines. But so much of your voice is just your experience. It's, I always say that's like, it's like, Everything that informs your voice is the stuff that that you find yourself thinking about. Even when you pick up your iPhone mm-hmm. at your lunch hour to draw, you choose things to draw based on what you want to draw, right? Um, right. Like, this is an interesting photograph, or I could translate this, you know, and I, or I would really love to draw this because you're looking at certain things. And what you're looking for in that photograph is different than what anybody else is looking for. Um, and how you render them is going to look different based on you know all of the other things that have to do with your style but every choice you make in terms of subject matter and um, to a certain extent style is based on everything you've been through in your life like what you find interesting what you find beautiful and that can be really frustrating for people too because oftentimes what we find interesting or beautiful is i also talk in the book about this like what we call the beginner gap right so you start mm-hmm. drawing and painting and your your taste level is always way far ahead of what your skill level is, especially in the beginning, right? So you're like, oh, I want to be able to draw this thing, this photograph, or I want to be able to draw like this artist. But we can't, right? Until we practice for a really long time. And so most people take up a creative practice and then they quit because they can't, they haven't found their voice yet. They haven't sort of gone through the the muck of practicing and trying and and messing up and trying over and trying over again. And so part of the process of, you know, finding your voice is this this very messy process of like showing up and doing the stuff you don't know how to do yet because your picture of what you want to make is very is is usually more advanced than what you're capable of in the beginning. And um and that's an important thing to recognize. And that's, I think, why it's especially important for adults. Kids are much more forgiving of themselves. Most kids, um, I think there are exceptions to that. But the older we get, the more judgmental we become of ourselves and the more our sort of inner, our, you know, inner urgings or this, our, what we really want to express are sort of like quashed because we're afraid we're not going to be able to, to execute on it. And your artistic voice doesn't have to, it changes over time, right? People have to be aware that. So it's not like you, I mean, I I think I I say in the very introduction of the book that like, 
your voice, um, like finding your voice is such a misleading phrase, right? Because it makes it sound like it's some this sort of fixed and final thing that you come to and that you sort of stay at the static place forever. So I liken it, and that's not true at all. So I liken it to more sort of floating around in your own orbit. Like you've kind of, and that's where I feel like I am now is that I have a really strong command of my mediums because I've been practicing for 12 years and I, I draw and paint every day. I have like a very strong sense of color and of composition and of symbolism, mm -hmm. all the things, all, you know, parts of my story I want to share with others through my art. Like I have a very strong sense of all of those things and they're all floating around with me in my orbit and I use them here. You know, I, I use different aspects of them in different pieces, but you cannot make art every day as a either a working artist or a hobby artist and not have your voice evolve you would get bored so easily. That's why most artists either pick up a new medium or their work tends to even very subtly change over time. And um, you want that because it would become so uninteresting to you if, you, if your skills or your, the look and feel of your work didn't evolve over time. Um, you actually want it to. And in, in some cases, artists will, I, I ask every time I go on a speaking tour and I'm talking about voice, I ask the audience, raise your hand if you've ever intentionally tried to like shake things up with your, you know, the look and feel of your work or with your voice because you got bored and like literally three quarters of the room hands will go up. And I'm, this is when I'm talking to other artists because we have an urge to shake things up every now and again. We don't want things to stay the same. We, we crave change. And that's actually a good thing because it keeps our work evolving. And, it, and as a working artist, it keeps things interesting for other people. Because if you were constantly making work that looked like the last thing, but only slightly different, it would be boring for you and it would be boring for other people. So we, we want our voice to evolve over time. Yeah, and I think you've talked before as well about, you know, when you're building your portfolio, you want to make sure that you put the stuff that you enjoy doing in there. And that's the same thing in kind of what you're putting out and what you're using to build your voice, right? Yes, and that's because every now and again, you might take an assignment or, you know, get paid to do something you don't really want to do um, just because you need the money or whatever. So I'm not knocking it, but I'm just saying like, for the <laughs> most part, I think we should all aspire to do the work we really want to make the most, um, if, especially if we're going to, you know, want to get paid for it. So many of us spent years, like I used to be like you, really into looking at reference and trying to draw realistically. And I got really into drawing people. And so I have like a million portraits out in the world. And um, I have a book where I drew the portraits of all these famous female artists. And, and then at some point I was like, I hate doing this. I do not want to do this anymore. And I was doing other things as well. That was never like my only thing. But I had to move on. And, um, and so for a long time after that, I still kept getting requests for portrait work. And I had to say, no, I don't do that anymore. It's just, it doesn't bring me joy. You know, I had to Marie Kondo it right. to a certain extent um, and move <laughs> on to the things that I like to do now. And, and now there's things I was doing maybe a year ago that I'm like less interested in. And I think it's good to keep, keep tabs on that because you want to, your process is, is going to be much more. Um, you're going to be much more able to sort of get into that flow state of making mm -hmm. art if you're doing stuff that you want to do. I want to talk about social media a little bit. Yeah. And I'm going to bring it back to what we, you were just talking about. You know, I feel that, you know, people will learn about this podcast through social media. 
they will go out and look at our Instagram feeds and everything else. You know, social media drives so much of this, right? Do you worry about changing lanes, shifting gears, changing direction? Do you think about, I'm going to lose a bunch of followers? Do you think about that audience that you've built up not following you? Does that worry you? Do you think others worry too much about that? It doesn't worry me personally, but because I am actually in a process of trying a lot of new things and potentially abandoning some other things. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm taking it one day at a time. And I also sort of personally have an attitude that I may lose followers if I post things that maybe become different than what I've traditionally posted. And I'm not exactly sure that's going to happen. But let's say, you know, over time, my feed becomes something different. I might lose followers, but it also means I'm going to gain people who are more interested in what I have to do. And I think that's my advice for people who might be worried about that. Because ultimately, I think in social media, like the joy you get as an artist from making certain kinds of work or um, the extent to which you are prolific in terms of making that work is directly related to whether or not it's something that you're, you're motivated and engaged to do. And if you're making stuff for an audience, but it's not exactly what you want to be doing. It's not going to be end up being very exciting to other people anyway. But if you're making work, even if it's different than what you've done before, if you start making work that's different, um, but it's what you really want to do, you might lose followers for a while, but you'll gain people who are m- more interested in what you want to do. And ultimately, you want a following who's excited about what you're doing at any given time. And so I personally think it's important to m- focus more on your creative your own personal creative output rather than other people's responses to it i know it's easier said than done right but yeah and i think that uh you know as creators we can always be more supportive in when we see people choosing a direction uh, a different direction than what they've done uh, as a matter of work creative work that uh, being there to support them to comment to say this you know to be honest about what they're doing and how they're doing it and being positive and supportive in that. Uh, because I see so many artists who do this, right? And I'm trying to do it myself, where you are doing this one thing and you want to try this other thing over here. And the way I look at what you're doing now and so many others is, you did this awesome stuff you know, in all the work that you've done up to now. I can't wait to see what you're going to do in this new medium or this new area. And I hope that others look at artists the same way, to say that wait a second, they were doing oil paint, now they're doing graphite, or they're going from graphite to colored pencil or to ceramics or whatever the case. And you, like that's, I think, the positive thought that people need to have is, I wonder what they're going to do in this space because no one's ever done it before. And I think that's what's important is that what we, what we do, no one's done. We can say it's similar to so-and-so and whatever the case, but if we don't do it, it's going to go to our grave with us, right? And uh, we, we have to be supportive. That's right. And if you're holding back from diving into a new medium or trying something new because and posting it because you're worried that, you know, about what other people are going to think, like, I think that's a hard question you got to ask yourself. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, for example, I get the most traction and the most response to certain kinds of posts that I make. And I like to make those posts every now and again because I enjoy making them, but I can't make them every day because most of the time they involve a lot of writing and I have to make some new piece of art to go with the writing. And it's exhausting. I can't do that every day. And so I know there are days when I'm going to post something that's probably boring to the majority of my followers. But I'm, I still made that thing. And I'm still putting it out into the world. And 
some people are still really enjoying it. And um, I remember a, f- a few years ago when I was still kind of mucking around and figuring out who I was and what I wanted to do as an artist, and I was just kind of coming into finding my voice. I started going from much more realistic painting to much more abstract painting. And now I've kind of swung the pendulum back to representational, but not so realistic. So anyway, but when I was in this abstract period, um, I think a lot of people were really confused, quite frankly, like what's going on here. And it took a while for people, for me to get better at that medium and that sort of, or that way of painting for it to be strong. But it also took a while for my followers to get used to it. And Ultimately, I was doing what I wanted to do and needed to do because I had to express myself in this new way. And I think that's the problem with social media. We let so much of it sort of mm, control our decisions about what we're going to make. Like, I'm going to make this thing because I know it's going to perform better on social media, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I think a little bit of that is okay, you know, especially if you're a professional artist and you want to make a living and build a following. But I think if that's your sort of filter for what you sit down and make every day you got to ask yourself some hard questions about that i'm in this sabbatical and i'm trying all this new stuff and i quite frankly i suck at half of it i've been keeping a sketchbook and i haven't posted one picture of it i've been mucking around in ceramics and i'll show process photos but i've probably not shown very many final things it's because i'm terrible at it because i'm a beginner and that's okay and that's the thing is like i'm still doing it i'm just not necessarily posting it on social media so much but maybe eventually i will do you think you would have posted more 10 years ago yes um that's a really great question so when i had fewer followers and i was just starting out i was much less discerning about what i posted i've been on it for almost 10 years and i you go back and it's just like mishmash um i you know my work's kind of all over the place there's also lots of pictures of my cats and my former cats they both died since then but and my dog and like you know just kind of bad photos with filters because you know instagram was like all about the filters and it just cracks me up because i was posting sometimes seven things a day i would never do that anymore partly because i have so many followers but partly because like nobody does that because we know that because so many more people are on instagram That if you were being bombarded with seven photos in one day from somebody who followed, you'd be like, stop, you're overwhelming me, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, Our rules around engagement have changed so much since then. And personally, I think I'm because so many people are looking at my work every day, I'm much more private and discerning about what I share. And I love stories because I can share private messy things but they only stay up for 24 hours right (laughs) you know so that's kind of a a really great addition but yeah my approach to social media has changed a lot in the last 10 years for a variety of reasons yeah i think uh i see some really highly curated feeds you know down to color right and to blocks and things like that and um i try personally to post a lot of works in progress because i want to encourage others to draw uh, specifically to draw. And so I want to be able to show this is how I start. This is part way through. This is the end. And I sometimes look back at it and think, it's messy. Maybe I should just post my final pieces, but <laughs> that's not the story I want to tell. So I wanted to, you touched on something in your book about uh, supporting art, you know, looking for local support groups, meeting with other artists. Um, and I wanted to talk about that a little bit because 
I've had some experiences around that, and I, I, it's when you start moving into calling yourself an artist, I think that the expectation is when you're around other artists, they're your people. It's going to work. Everything's going to be fine. That's not always the case. That there are different types of artists, and there are different types of groups, and I don't think that people should feel that they went to this meetup or this event, and it wasn't their it wasn't their jam, right? It wasn't their groove. The, the people were a little bit different. They were at different stages. They were at different interests. And it's not just going to an art group, an art meetup, and then judging it based on that. It's finding the people that are closest to you or that you can feel that you can learn from. And uh, I think that it's the other part of that, too, is that how do you redefine yourself amongst your friends and families and workers to say, and this is the challenge I have now is, I have a podcast and I'm an artist. I didn't have a podcast a year ago, and I've the artist thing is still something that I'm working with. How do you add that label to yourself so that when you're in conversation, people say, "Oh, what do you do?" <laughs> and that be- that becomes a challenge, right? I've talked about in the past about labels on yourself, but it is hard to, uh, and that's where these support groups are 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 helpful is meeting with people that are close to you, but also trying to meet with the people you've known for 20, 30, 40, 50 years and saying, this is who I am now. I used to, I drew a cartoon once a few years ago for a talk that I was giving this like back in 2016 or 17, um, back in, I'm like <laughs> talking about it like it's <laughs> eons ago, but uh, several years ago I, I wrote this talk and I wrote a bunch of cartoons that went in and in this cat character was basically me in the, in the cartoons. But there's one where she, she goes, the cat goes to a party and you know it's not a it's not an art party it's not like a an, an artist meetup it's like a it's a cocktail party or a regular party that you would go to with your wife and I might go to with my partner or whatever and somebody says oh what do you do and 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 you know in the speech bubble it says um uh i'm an artist question <laughs> mark you know because we 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 because it's this thing that um i i can say that now but i still and because i i am like a professional artist but in the beginning when i was sort of only making a partial living from it it always felt like this risky thing to say like that i was somehow pretentious or and i'm sure you find yourself saying well you know i work in technology at this hospital but i also make art on the side but then you're like should i even be mentioning that you know what weird questions are they going to ask me because even now i'm a full time artist and have been for years and i still go to the party and i say i'm an artist or i'll say i'm an illustrator and then the weird questions i get based on people's sort of like preconceived notions about what that means or what who i must be or what my life must be like are Mm -hmm. sometimes a little overwhelming and so my wife teases me because a lot of times i avoid conversations where i have to talk about what i do um because it's so awkward and it's, so it's still awkward for me, and it was definitely even more awkward back in the beginning. I'm not going to say I'm happy, but <laughs> it is, it's good to hear that. After I gave that talk, and I started talking openly about just sort of this awkwardness around talking about yourself and owning your identity as an artist and how awkward that is, so many people said, me too, me too, my too, and like started telling funny stories about weird social situations. I think it's really common, and it doesn't necessarily go away. <laughs> sadly (laughs) well thank you for that (laughs) that's why as you said finding your people 
you know, finding a group of other creative people that you can hang out with and just be yourself around and be an artist in and not feel weird about your identity as an artist is also extremely important. I would agree. Since I've started uh, going to a few local meetups and uh, even even talking to your people like yourself and others on the podcast has made it easier. It's kind of validated the small little things that you would do every day or once a week that you think is weird and then you hear somebody else doing it um, and you're thinking, okay, that's cool. That's, you know, your book is a lot about that. And that's why I think it's such a powerful book. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, So I wanted to, can we spend a little bit of time just talking about the tools you're using now? Because I think if, if, I got, if I got this wrong, let me know, but I think you're a big iPad user. Would that be correct? That is correct. Um, so basically what happened, well, so just to give everyone a little background, if you're not familiar with my, my journey, um, mm-hmm. I previously made most of my work in one of two mediums. I used gouache for everything color. I was a gouache on paper person for my mm-hmm. illustration work. And I drew in micron pens mostly on vellum, and then I would scan it and um, digitize it. And I, that process was very labor intensive for me. And I would scan things and clean things up in Photoshop, but mostly I was an analog artist. And then I, my fine art, I paint in acrylic on wood and that hasn't changed. So anyway, I went through this period a few years ago where I was working a lot and working analog and I got horrible carpal, uh, like tennis elbow. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess that's what they call it. And there's a scientific name for it, but mm, the tendons in my arm seized up and I was in excruciating pain. And, um, oh so I became, and it was from repetitive motion, both on the computer and on the, um, just drawing and the ways that I was drawing. And so during this period, I was part of a women's drawing group and a couple of the gals in the group were, had bought iPads and were using this new, at the time, new software called Procreate. And mm-hmm. they were like, Lisa, you should really try this. And I was like, no, 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 no. I am not a digital drawer. I do not have any interest in digital drawing. A few years earlier, I had been a, a, like a, a tester for Adobe's digital drawing program, and I hated it, and I told them so. I was like, no offense to you, Adobe. I love you for other things, but th- this is mm-hmm. not for me. And but they kept saying, you know, you should try it, you should try it. And I, so I borrowed a friend's iPad over a weekend and I just started mucking around with it. And I was like, you know what? This feels more, you know, the doctor basically told me in order to get over this carpal tunnel issue I was having or this tennis elbow issue was to completely switch up how I was drawing and the number of steps in the process. And so that's why my friends were recommending the iPad because it was like you could draw, you wouldn't have to draw and scan and go back and edit on the computer. Like it's all just happens in, in this one place. And so I, I decided to go for it. I bought an iPad after the borrowing my friends for the weekend. And within two weeks, I was addicted because they had made <laughs> so much progress in terms of like the, pen, the brushes and the pencils. And I really found some that I enjoyed using and I got really into it. And it, I could work so much faster and my tendon problems disappeared over time. And uh, then what happened was I started having really bad neck and back problems because I was sort of craning over the iPad drawing all of the time. But it really allowed me to, to work on almost every book and every client project that I've had since then in a much more streamlined way. And I've really been happy with the results. That said, 
I began to get to the place where I craved the more tactile experience of art making. So part of mm-hmm. what I'm working on now during my sabbatical is going back to acrylic on wood. Um, I have a big show coming up in June. So I'm making a bunch of paintings. I started making a quilt yesterday. Um, wow. I've been diving into ceramics in the last nine months. I'm getting better and better every day. Although ceramics is one of those things. It's like you never know what you're going to see when you open up the kiln because, you know, once things get baked, chemistry happens and all <laughs> kinds of things can go either right or wrong. Um, I, I'm really loving the sort of go, diving back into that. I still use the iPad. I still draw digitally, but not nearly as much. I'm also taking a break from client work, so I just don't have as much, you know, of that kind of work to do. But so those are sort of all of the mediums that I work in now. And you have a sketchbook that you mentioned before that you're using as well, just with pencil. Um, I've been using some crayons. Like I, I try to sometimes force myself to use materials that force me to be messy because I am a very precise person. And um, that's one thing that the iPad has mm, probably exacerbated in me is my ability to make things look really clean and perfect because mm-hmm. you can do that with digital drawing in a way that when you're using other mediums, um, they often have a mind of their own. And so when you're drawing digitally, you have much more control, in my opinion. And so going back to wet mediums and pencil and, you know, I've been using pastels and stuff is forcing me to to let go of perfection again and really embrace wonkiness. And so I've actually been, I have pretty good control with graphite, but I've um, been going to some pastels and some crayons and so it's more it's le- it's more of an exercise in loosening up than right. making something pretty, which is why I haven't really shared any of those <laughs> pages from it. <laughs> I think that uh, it's fun. Like I've I've actually thought about just taking out some kids' Crayola crayons and trying something like just going really. And I, I know that I would enjoy it for a bit, and I I don't know what would happen next. I mean, I use an iPad a lot for drawing, but I still crave. Especially drawing with graphite. I mean, that's what that's my go-to. I'm trying to do watercolor. Really, it's nothing wash. like watercolor or pencil in its real form. I mean, Adobe just released uh, a product or has been releasing products that are so amazing. How you can make things look like, you know, watercolor or pencil. But there is this tactile experience in using those mediums that really is unparalleled. Um, <laughs> so I agree. Yeah, I've been trying to do the whole urban sketching thing, which has been uh, fun as well, like getting out and having kind of a tight, you know, I've got to draw this thing um, within an hour, an hour and a half, two hours, whatever the case. I went to the museum and did some sketching there and uh, just forcing myself to be a bit looser because of the work that I do. I tend to be focused on detail and I'm trying to do stuff a bit, uh, I, I can draw fairly quickly, but I wanted to do something looser where I'm standing up and yeah. my 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 53-year-old back is saying, sit down, and my hand is saying, I got to finish this piece. A friend of mine, um, she keeps, uh, she goes every Wednesday to this um, figure drawing class, and or it's not a class, but it's just like a session where you can sit and draw a live model. And I've been saying, oh, Beth, I want to go with you, I want to go with you, and then I keep chickening out. And I think I'm afraid, you know, quite frankly, everyone thinks I'm fearless, but like, I'm afraid, like I'm going to suck. Right. And I, but I actually think that's what's amazing. Like, that's why I need to do it because that feeling of being a beginner again is, is often, you know, when you use a new medium or you're drawing in a way that's out of your comfort zone, 
it's actually really can be a powerful experience. Um, you know, interesting. You mentioned figure drawing. I did my first figure drawing two weeks ago on the iPad. I just decided I was looking at other people's work and I was inspired by what they were doing. It's like, I'm going to draw, try drawing some people. Yeah. And so I, I drew some feet and I drew a man and a woman and, and, and I just, played with it for a bit. I was thinking, I got to get back to this. Like, I haven't done it before, but I'm going to go back to it at some point in the future yeah, and explore it some more. But it is one of those things where it's like, you know, I think I'm pretty decent at this other stuff, but are people going to look at this and think, oh, I see, one trick pony or whatever the case, yeah, exactly. right? That, but it is, uh, and that's why I'm trying to be honest with everyone and saying that it's okay to try something and, and not be great at it, right? When you first start out, because that's, if you didn't have the bad stuff, the good stuff wouldn't re- really be nearly as much fun. And it wouldn't look nearly as good. You need the contrast, right? You do. I think there's a sense of satisfaction that comes when you actually apply yourself to getting better at something that is, it's unparalleled. It's just, uh, Mm. there's something about that that is so satisfying. And for me personally, very motivating. Now, can I ask you about your sabbatical? Yeah. So we've kind of touched on it a little bit. And are you, so I'm going to touch on something that you talk about. You talk about fear in your uh, latest book. Are you looking for fear in 2020? Is that what you're trying to take hold of? Is, is that playing into what you're trying to do? And I know this seems like an odd question, but you talk about fear in a way that I thought was so uh, interesting because it does play heavily into my thought process and I think a lot of creatives. Are you looking for fear in 2020 in your creative process? I guess in a way I am. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily call it fear. I'd call it more being uncomfortable or being in the abyss to a certain extent, like the not knowing, the place of not knowing. And that's mm-hmm. a little scary. So maybe I am looking for fear, um, but not necessarily in the way that we think of fear as being this terrible thing. I definitely right. feel like I've been very comfortable. I've gotten to the place where I have very strong command of my work. My voice is very well formed. I, I'm i very like, um, I wouldn't say my work is predictable, but it all hangs together. And I'm you know, I have a certain path that I've pursued in terms of my subject matter and what I do, and, and it's been very well received by people, and I'm very grateful for all of that, but there's something about that that leaves me feeling a little bit like wanting something new and different, and so part of this year is just taking a break because I've been working like a like a dog for, for 10 years, but, <laughs> you know, so some of it is just relaxing, but some of it is like when I am working, going back to mediums that I have less control over, um, trying new things that that I've never tried before. And not because I necessarily want to stay in a place of fear, but I want to make my I want to push myself out of my comfort zone again. And also just make some stuff that I want to make, no, no matter how it turns out. Like, I spent most of my career now being art directed, you know, that's what illustration is, you get a job, and they want you to draw the thing. Um, and they, you know, you get art direction and it's really fun to work that way. But the, the best days are, you know, when I wake up and I'm like, I get to go make something that I want to make. I get to execute this idea that's in my head that I'm so excited about. Right. And, um, Mm -hmm. and that's part of what the sabbatical is about too, is like kind of getting to explore my own ideas and experiment and try things and, there's a lot of that happening um, right now. And it's frustrating because, as you said, social media sort of, you know, is this constant reminder that we need to be producing new content and, like, posting it all the time. And I'm actually making less work now than I was when I was, quote, you know, working before um, because 
I've slowed down so much and there's so much experimentation going on that I don't necessarily want to post a lot of it. Like I, like you, I like, I do post some in progress stuff, especially in my stories and people know that I'm experimenting, but I'm not mm-hmm. really committing to anything. I'm just in this space of like, let's see what happens. I don't know. I don't even know where my career is headed at this point. And yeah, that's a little scary, but it's also super exciting because I've been doing the same thing for a long time. Not necessarily making the same artwork, but I've been, I've had a career where I've just been working with clients and making books and, you know, very prolific. And, and I'm like, that's fun, but what else is there? How else could I express myself? And I get to look at that. Can I ask you, because you're a writer as well, when you're walking into this sabbatical in 2020, are you making decisions and thinking about in the back of your mind, this would be a good book, or this would be, I need to do this bit because that could make an interesting story. Is that feeding into what you're doing as well? Not, do you no, think? No, not yet. No? Um, okay. The last thing I want to do is make another book right now. Um, and I say that, <laughs> okay. and I don't mean to say that, like, I am so grateful that I have had so many opportunities to make books. And I have three more, two more coming out ne- this year and one next year um, that I've already wow. done with, but that are in the sort of editing phases. Or one of them's, I think, close to going to print. But yeah, so I'm, I'm very, um, I'm actually sort of cognizant of this desire to take a break and from the way I've been doing things. Now, that said, I literally could wake up tomorrow, go to the studio, start working and have some incredible brainstorm for this needs to be a book. So I'm not saying I'm averse to it. It just hasn't happened yet. And it's not necessarily always the thing on the back of my mind um, in the way that you would imagine. I think partly because I've made so many books over the last 10 years, I'm, I'm a little burned out on it. And I think it's important to take a break. And when the right idea comes, we'll see what happens. <laughs> awesome. Well, we will be there for it. <laughs> Guaranteed. Uh, and I'm sure it'll be brilliant. Now, I wanted to um, also ask you about, are, is there any, I mean, maybe this is what the sabbatical is for, but do you have any kind of unrealized dreams? Uh, any unrealized dreams that you have? You know, I have made it my business to pursue every dream I've ever had. And so, and that, I mean, I I come from a place of privilege and that I've been able to do that, right? Um, I increasingly had a good income and been able to even produce some things on my own instead of waiting for the right client to come along, right? Um, But, (laughs) you know, it's so interesting is that I have these notions in my head for like what would ultimately like like make me feel like I had arrived as an illustrator. So not even a dream project because it's some like because I I already like bought a kiln and I'm now making ceramics. I think a year and a half ago I would have said that's the thing, right? If you had asked me that same question. Mm-hmm. Um and I'm I sort of like am using this opportunity to travel and go see things and get inspired and all of those things so i'm already doing all the things i dream about but what's interesting is like the one you know there's like one thing that i've never done i've never been asked to illustrate for the new york times and <laughs> that's like, it's like sorry this, i have no connections there <laughs> yeah right you're a canadian but it's you know it's like the new york times it's like the prominent yeah. newspaper of the world and it's kind of like this thing i need to tick off my list not because it's going to be necessarily the most fun or inspiring thing but it's like it's like this uh bucket list thing i guess um Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, there are illustrators with far less fame or experience than me who have illustrated for the New York Times. It's, it's just this sort of like personal thing I have that someday I want to make an illustration for the New York Times, but I've never been asked. So I wouldn't call it necessarily a dream project, but definitely a, you know, a bucket list thing. Um, and the New Yorker magazine would also be amazing. So, mm-hmm. but you know what? I have a long career ahead of me. Um, yes. And those things might still happen, but. That'd be, that'd yeah. be so cool. <laughs> that would be cool. I have another question before we go into homework, and that is, what's the best advice you think you've ever received? You know, I was actually just having a conversation with about with somebody um, the other night about this very question. It came up in a totally different context. Nobody was interviewing me. It was just me talking to a friend. And we were talking about mm-hmm. this idea of, um, that of, of a continuum or this idea of yin and yang when it comes to decision making. And somebody said to me once and it was actually a a a coach that i was working with very early in my art career i felt very scattered and lost and overwhelmed and i hired this woman who was a a life and business coach to sort of help me kind of mm, develop a framework for you know the way i showed up in the world and as an artist and um and she used to say to me all the time i was terrified of saying no to any opportunity that came my way and it, it, ironically, it wasn't yet a problem in my life, but I was still terrified of it before it became a problem. It became a problem because I started getting asked to do everything and I couldn't say yes to everything. And so it eventually became a problem. It was like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? But I was really mm-hmm. terrified of this, like, how do I make choices? And she said to me, every time you say no to one thing, you're saying yes to something else. And so, um, you know, this idea that is to fill your time and your life with more things that bring you energy and engagement over stuff that strips you of your energy or makes you resentful. And so I have started to think of yes and no as sort of like the yin and yang or not that one is bad and one is good, right? But that we life is full of choices and um, for example, to take the sabbatical, I have, I have to say no to a lot of things because I'm not doing client work right now and I get requests almost every day from potential clients. And, and I've made this choice, right? And I have to explain it to people. And yet what I gain from the time that I have to myself and my own creative process as the result of saying no is one of the most, at least so far, fulfilling things that I've ever done. And that's not to say I won't go back to doing client work and starting to say yes again to working with, um, you know, nonprofits and companies out in the world that want to hire me. But life is not this sort of binary thing where something is either good or bad, right? Like, they're just extremes of the same thing. And, and so that has that piece of advice has stuck with me over the years. And I've maybe fleshed it out more and elaborated on it more. But it, it really has been so critical every time I've had to make a hard decision when I had very little time or when I wasn't sure a project was just right for me, you know, oh, I'm going to say no to this and that's going to feel hard because I'm going to disappoint someone. But that means Mm -hmm. I also will have more time for this other project or this other thing, or I get to take a vacation this summer when I wouldn't have otherwise been able to. So um, I feel like that advice literally comes into play in my life every single day. And it feels really important to me. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, we could all benefit from thinking of things that way. Uh, absolutely. Thank you. I did <laughs> that. W- that was great. Um, so, I, 
if if we move into now you becoming a coach with regard to homework, what could you propose as homework for, for the person listening to the show right now in kind of moving their creative journey forward? I think the most important thing in moving your creative journey forward is if you are not already on a schedule for making time for your creative thing, whatever that thing might be, at least five days a week, or, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, Monday through Friday, it could be whatever day, even if it's only Saturday or Sunday, making that time. And I think for some people, and I talk about this a little bit in Find Your Artistic Voice, is like, um, for some people who have children and commutes and jobs, you have to find that time in the margins of your day. And you did that, Mike, like you go and draw at lunchtime. You found this this space in your day where you make time for your creative process every day and you will not, your voice will not be formed. You will not progress creatively. You will not become better or more prolific or um, without showing up and doing the thing every day. And you are not going to create a masterpiece every day. In fact, that 15 or 20 or minutes or an hour that you schedule in your in your day a few days a week um, might sometimes actually feel super frustrating. But those frustrating moments are actually really important in your growth and and just continuing to show up and shutting out the world and spending some time drawing, painting, making music, um, you know, sculpting, collaging, whatever, writing, whatever that thing is, making time for that thing. That is the most important thing you can do. Thank you. I think that's a homework we could all easily take on. And uh, I agree. Devoting that time, I'm going to try and do more of that and try to be intentional with it. And uh, I want um, to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about all this and being so open about your journey and your experiences. And where can people find you on on the interwebs. <laughs> yeah, the interwebs. Um, well, the place that I hang out most often is Instagram. So I I post generally f- Monday through Friday there, and that's at Lisa Congdon, um, just my name. The advantage of being an early adopter is that you can get your name as your username. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I have an underscore to Yeah, I know, I know. Um, and then I have a website which also has an online shop where you can buy my books and you can look at my classes and I have other sort of prints and products and um, information on there. And that's uh, just lisacongdon.com. So um, that's a good sort of like landing page resource for all the things that I do. That's awesome. So there's going to be show notes around this episode. I'm going to embed those links. And if there's anything else that we've talked about, I will have those in the show notes as well. So thank you so much, Lisa Congdon, for uh, joining me today. I have to say that I really enjoyed this conversation. I found it inspirational, motivational, and I'm sure so many other people will as well. And if you haven't uh, purchased Lisa's books, go out and take a look. They are wonderful. And if you are on a creative journey and you're looking at trying to move yourself forward and you're trying to even look for validation and an understanding about what you're doing, Elisa's done a brilliant job in her books and kind of outlining that for us. And uh, thank you again, Lisa. This has been great. Thanks, Mike. It was really my pleasure. Show notes, including links to everything Lisa and I spoke about, can be found at drawinginspiration.fm slash 22. You can find links to all my social media accounts. 
You can find links to all my social media accounts at drawinginspiration.fm, including my Instagram, which is Mike underscore Hendley, where I post all my art. Follow me or tag me so I can see what you've created recently. Until next time, be kind to one another and keep drawing. Theme music for this podcast is Acid Jazz, provided by Kevin McLeod.